This is Mental, the podcast to destigmatize mental health. I'm Bobby Temps, and each week with an inspiring guest, we delve into a factor or condition that influences the mind and how to better manage it. So, here we go. This week, we're talking all about psychosis with Dr. Shaham Das, who's an NHS doctor and consultant forensic psychiatrist. He's also commonly brought in to assess mentally disordered offenders, whether that's in prison, in court, or secure forensic psychiatric units. For example, Broadmoor Hospital. He's also in the information sent over to me, name drop the Old Bailey as well, which of all the things to kind of name drop, I love that we've got a court where he commonly supports investigations around murder trials and Broadmoor Hospital a very well-known, but also historically pretty controversial psychiatric facility. Anyway, I think that gives you a bit of a a nod to the flair that he has as someone that is incredibly well-specialised and qualified in this area, but also used to talking publicly about his work and knowing to what extent in our very kind of true crime-esque world, particularly here in podcasting, what it is that kind of catches people's attention. So in the episode, we get into symptoms of psychosis, timeframes, what the diagnosis process is like, and the kind of risk factors that can contribute to someone experiencing psychosis. There's also a lot of chat about stigma, including how media depictions can exaggerate and and just misrepresent what psychosis is like to experience. With that all said, we'll get into this episode in a moment, but first... Who's our sponsor? Let's find out. We love to cheerlead for self-care here at Mental, and you may have realised by now my favourite self-care is skincare. Plus, an important part of self-care that often goes overlooked is setting personal goals that aren't about the outside world, like other people or your career. That's why I'm delighted to introduce personalised treatments to meet your unique skin goals from Skin & Me. Simply take a quick online consultation, share a few filter-free selfies, and you'll get back a bespoke skincare treatment. Packed with powerful active ingredients you usually can't get over the counter. The formulation is created especially for you by the Skin & Me dermatologists and specialist prescribers All it takes is a few moments to apply your treatment each evening and reveal healthy, happier skin. And your treatment can evolve with your skin to tackle concerns ranging from acne, pigmentation, ageing and so many more. Not only does the product really work, but it's also sustainable, recyclable, vegan and cruelty free. So make a commitment to yourself and your skin with Skin and Me. Plus, as one of our listeners, you get your first month for just the 350 pharmacy fee with code HEALTH at skinandme.com. Normally, it is $24.99 per month, and you can cancel or reformulate your solution at any time for free. My name is Dr. Shaham Das. I have to say, growing up, I had very little exposure to mental health issues. It's not something that was talked about in my family. It's not something that I was ever really exposed to, to my knowledge. I, I went through medical school and I didn't really feel particularly inspired by any of the placements that I'd done. 
in any of the settings, any of the hospitals, until I did a psychiatry placement, which was in my fourth year of medical school. So I would have been around 21, maybe 22. And I immediately connected to it. I think one of the reasons was that the staff that were working there, the psychiatrists, the nurses, the social workers were really open, really friendly compared to most other placements that I'd done that so far in my medical career. But probably more than that, it was actually the connection to the people that I would see. So you get a wide range of patients. It was on a liaison psychiatry ward. So that meant that it was usually people that come through A&E departments. And there was anything from people becoming psychotic. So to be specific, they might suffer from quite paranoid or grandiose delusions. And I thought there was something absolutely fascinating about the kind of beliefs that they had to step in and share their their worlds and their beliefs. And the other quite common presentation that I would see is people that would come in post-suicide attempt. And I just felt there's something very intimate about being able to sit down with people who had survived that experience and talk to them about it. So I suppose my role was to pick out the very small proportion of those people who were unsafe to go home and to help them get onto a psychiatric ward. And some of those would have very limited insight. So I'd have to make a decision about whether they needed to be sectioned or not. So that was what my role was. But I would say that it was also an opportunity for me to to support people in that situation. So it was quite often quite cathartic, I think, for them to be able to open up to a stranger because sometimes it's easier to talk to a stranger about something as poignant as a suicide attempt than it is to for them to speak to their own friends and family. So I felt like I was privileged to be in a situation where I heard their stories firsthand. So that's that's a very emotional memory for me of, of first getting into the world of psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's moving here and just how impressed you were by like the level of care that you saw as well. When you were first starting out considering choosing medicine to study, did you have an idea of what field you might land in? No, I've got to be perfectly honest. I didn't really have a plan at all. <laughs> I didn't really even think about my future. I think I was quite immature. You know, I started medical school at 18. I think I probably had the mindset of a 14 or a 15 year old. For me, it was all about socialising. It was only later on in my career. I, again, I'd, I'd say actually when I started my psychiatry placement, that's the first time that actually I felt that I was doing something that I actually cared about. Mm-hmm. I, I so, only laugh yeah, because I, I know from friends of mine how intense studying medicine is it's not really the degree I would have chosen for socializing yeah well uh, as as a quite typical story coming from an Asian background my parents kind of pushed me into medicine Mm -hmm. so I was clever enough to get the grades I I was indifferent to be perfectly honest with you at the beginning about what degree I was going to do so I I didn't I didn't have feelings about it either way I didn't Mm -hmm particularly want to become a doctor but I didn't have another anything else that I wanted to do instead so I kind of went along with it yeah and for the actual course itself my understanding is that it's much harder now so they take attendance for a start they didn't do that back in my day and a lot more of it is is coursework related yeah mm-hmm. so I don't know how it fared uh, in, in modern day medicine no fair but I I like that you just went into it being like okay well my family are up for this one I don't really mind I've got the grades it's an interesting start and then you find something that you would have never seen coming as as your area of interest there and what was that like in terms of the pressure because you were making really important decisions about people's health and yet the way you describe it mental health wasn't part of your like practical experience you know having not worked in in that kind of placement before and then you're landed in it and you're making big decisions about people's health 
I, I would have to say that there uh, there isn't actually that much pressure initially because there's like a hierarchy, mm-hmm. right? So when I first started my placements at medical school, I was just a mere medical student. So all I would do is uh, assess the patients and then feedback the my conclusions to a consultant. And they would ask me what I think I should do, but it's always their ultimate decision. Mm-hmm. So a medical student doesn't actually really, you know, we practice making decisions, but we always run it through a senior. And then even jumping forward a little bit, when I became a junior doctor in psychiatry and went through the training regime, you always pass up your decisions up to a registrar who's a middle grade doctor or a consultant who's the, the highest kind of level. So it's only when I became a consultant, which was relatively recently, it's 2014, that I make decisions for myself. So I suppose the point I'm trying to make is, unlike something like A&E, where everything's very, very fast paced and you're th- you're thrown in the deep end with psychiatry. It's generally speaking, it's a bit sort of slower, and you usually pass your decisions up a chain of uh, a hierarchy of doctors. So the pressure's not there until you become a consultant yourself. Mm, that makes sense. And within psychiatry, then, what drew you to specifically working with criminality and identifying like the differences between you know what are behaviours people are acting out due to, for example, psychosis that we're we're talking about today versus criminal intent. Yeah. So I have to say, when I uh, when I started my psychiatry placement, I knew very little about forensic psychiatry because, as I'm sure you and your, your listeners will know, the vast majority of people with a mental illness are not dangerous. It's only a very small proportion. And those patients are either seen in prisons or they are uh, detained within secure units for offenders. So the point I'm making is that there are very few and far between. So of every, say, maybe 10, 15 general psychiatric wards, there's one forensic psychiatry ward. So because of that, the forensic units, uh, it's quite hard to get on a forensic psychiatry placement because there's just simply not enough placements for, for all the doctors to have experience on. And I have to say, I did it on a bit of a whim, really. So it's my very last placement before I had to decide which subspecialty to choose. So it's my very last placement as a senior house officer before I became a registrar. And I didn't know what to expect. I connected to it almost straight away. And that was a bit of a surprise for me. I think I've always been interested in criminality to a degree. So I've always listened to, you know, gangster rap, always loved my Goodfellas and mob (laughs) films ever since I was a teenager. But it never really occurred to me that that I could connect that slight fascination with criminality to my career. And then I ended up in this medium secure unit for a six month placement. And I think it's the backstories that really drew me in. So every single person that was there, there was a reason why they had committed a serious offence and there was a reason why they had a severe mental illness and often it was the same same reasons so it was from poverty to being victims of abuse to witnessing domestic violence to drug use all those risk factors so I found it fascinating to delve into their into their backgrounds and and learn their stories yeah yeah well there's almost like a parallel kind of line of investigation there much like colleagues of yours will be working to understand criminality and how events occurred and who's responsible for crime. There's also that kind of mental health aspect that you get to study specifically of how did this person end up where they are in front of me today? And to what extent, you know, was that nature versus nurture? Was it their circumstances? To what degree were they aware of maybe something that they did? Yeah, it fascinates me as well. There's like, I can see why there's that definite crossover for you of like a fascination in true crime. And then also, okay, there's all these additional layers of, okay, who is the person? And I think you notice that a lot in podcasting now, that so much of true crime is 
very like person-centered is trying to get inside the mind of what would be going through your head at these pivotal moments in people's lives. I suppose something that I've learned over my line of work is that even perpetrators are victims. So most of the people that I end up assessing, again, either in prison or in these in these units, at some point they had they were damaged, they were victimised. Again, whether that be that they were bullied at school or whether they had neglectful parents, sometimes it's even more overt than that. Sometimes they were actually physically or, or sexually abused. So I think that's an uncomfortable truth that it's that some people struggle to get their head around that people who end up doing quite horrible things, you know, I've seen I've seen defendants who have committed sexual offences against children, who've, you know, killed strangers, killed family members. Almost all of them at some point were a victim. And I think that's something that is is hard for a lot of people to understand. Yeah, definitely. It's an uncomfortable space to, I think, acknowledge the grey versus the black and white there. In many ways there can be something reassuring about a Disney-esque narrative of everyone is either a goodie or a baddie and the baddies wear green clothes and the goodies wear you know pink and that's how you can tell them apart and you know in the real world it's it's not like that and that's fascinating but it's also part of what makes your role so tricky and what makes it so difficult as it comes to stigma for the public to understand a lot of this nuance about experiences that happen in other people's minds that can be really difficult to relate to. So circling on to our theme of psychosis, could you share a bit of background on what this term means and what kind of common symptoms you'll tend to pick up on? Sure. So I think the term psychosis is often misunderstood. Sometimes the layperson thinks that it's it's anybody who's, you know, agitated, disturbed, aggressive. It's none of those things. So psychosis is a temporary state of mental illness as opposed to for example something like a personality which is which is ingrained and and almost permanent so psychosis in theory is is temporary and it is stepping outside of reality and there are quite a few different symptoms but the most common would be hallucinations and delusions so hallucinations would be hearing or seeing things that are not there auditory hallucinations would be hearing voices in the patient group that i see and again i really want to make the point that i see offenders you know people from prison so people who commit violence which is only a very very small proportion of of people Mm -hmm. with psychosis but with the the ones that i see they often have command hallucinations so this is where they hear voices telling them to hurt other people or even to hurt themselves and they feel compelled to listen to them because they're just relentless always there and then in terms of delusions within the offender group they're often paranoid delusions so very typical delusions for my patients would be that random strangers are following them or want to hurt them or want to kill them even, or are poisoning them, or there are cameras planted and they're being watched. Less often, well, another common symptom of psychosis, but it's less often in the cohort that I see who offend would be grandiose delusions. The grandiose delusions is where the individual believes that they have special powers or gifts. So it was to, off the top of my head, I've, I've assessed some patients who believe they've got an exceptionally high IQ or that they're you know related to Jesus Christ, I've seen, or that I've even assessed patients who genuinely believe that they can fly. And then finally, I'd say there's delusions of reference. So this is where the individual believes that there's messages that are especially for them. So they believe that cartoon characters or TV characters are talking to them in some sort of code. Mm-hmm. And then there's, there's some sort of mission or message for them. Yeah. And on the hallucinations, the auditory ones that you described, am I right in thinking that 
auditory are the most common and within that it's more usual you know for the general population as opposed to your patients that they are negative voices against you as opposed to getting you to do anything they're just like insulting you or adding to the paranoia yeah absolutely so the vast majority of times where people are hearing voices they're either insulting them directly or telling them something or just making them feel paranoid like Commonly, I've heard patients tell me that they, they hear a voice saying, this person's out to get you, or nobody likes you, or you're a piece of S, or, you know, it's, it's usually insulting. I have occasionally in my career seen patients who have heard positive voices, but it's very rare. I think I can think of maybe two occasions where they actually enjoy the experience of hearing the voices because they feel like it's a connection to some sort of spiritual being and they can have quite pleasant conversations with these voices. But unfortunately, it's extremely, extremely rare. Yeah, no, I've I've met someone like that who would, she perceived it, hear the voice of God. And as long as it was positive things she was hearing, then that was actually quite comforting in some ways. Yeah. And, you know, luckily there was never commands within that. It was always kind of positive or negative towards her. And so at times she actually quite liked it. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. And this is one of the things that kind of fascinates me of like how extreme states of mental ill health can be both like relatable and entirely not so elements like hearing kind of negative things about yourself we're kind of used to that internally right we're used to like having negative self-talk but the difference is these things that you're hearing are generally experienced as external right as opposed to you being aware of oh that's a voice in my own head that's me saying negative things to myself this is voices that you're hearing and you might even be able to point to it sounds like it's coming from that side of the room or or so on yeah absolutely so when you have auditory hallucinations to the individual they feel 100% real so it's like hearing an external voice just like you can hear my voice now Mm -hmm. and most of the time they find it really hard to differentiate between what's reality and what isn't because it feels so real to them. Yeah and something I know you talk about a lot through your YouTube is to what extent it's possible to represent elements of psychosis within media and how so often that's done incorrectly or it's exaggerated and therefore not accurate. So a lot of us can find ourselves thinking of hallucinations automatically as a visual thing, and maybe that's partly how it's been presented to us. What I would say is that visual hallucinations are actually much rarer than auditory ones, and they tend to be organic. So it's much more likely that if somebody's having a visual hallucination related to, say, alcohol withdrawal or a brain tumour or some sort of severe illness, chemical imbalance, like encephalitis, for example, all of these things are much more likely to lead to visual hallucinations. It's extremely rare for somebody with a functional psychosis to actually see visions. And usually when they do, it's when when the illness is extremely severe. Mm-hmm. And what other things do you see that, that are inaccurate in media portrayals? It, it, of mental illness in general or specifically psychosis? Psychosis. I suppose... On the t- on the odd occasion where you do see psychosis in, in films, they tend to they tend to be both auditory and visual at the same time. So they hear and see like some sort of effigy or ghost in the corner. Whereas in reality, it's not really like that. In reality, it's it's hearing voices and believing that they're that they're real. It's a lot I more think fragmented, the, right? So like you might see like a, a very kind of clear visual in a movie, but in reality, it's it's more likely kind of seeing clouds looking a certain way or like faces in funky wallpaper that actually yeah exactly you know if any of us stare at wallpaper long enough we might be able to see something but it's that that thinking oh no that is 100% real 
that face. Yeah, you've uh, hit the nail on the head there, yeah. So the other thing I'd say is that there's a tendency within media to portray people who are psychotic, especially that are in hospital for the long term, to be, I'm trying to think of a nice way to put this, just kind of dribbling, shuffling wrecks. You know, that's how they come across on, on TV programmes to be. They, yeah, especially the dribbling. Whereas in reality, very few patients present like that. They usually are cognitively very intact so they, they it's only when you have long conversations with them that you realize that they have these beliefs i would say in for balance that there are some patients who unfortunately have such treatment resistant illnesses that they need to be on very high doses of medications for many years so you do get some patients who have like severe physical issues but they are the exception whereas on tv programs they seem to be the norm mm-hmm. And this is part of the stigma, right? As well as, you know, you, I know you also talk about like terms and how they can be tricky at times. Like, for example, psychosis, a lot of people are associating with someone being psychotic or someone being a psychopath. And actually, these are distinct and separate terms. The, the psi part, the similarities in the word is to do with the area of study as opposed to, you know, the number of letters in common mean they're similar. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. So being a quote-unquote psycho or a psychopath is completely different from being psychotic, yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier about the the time frame. So there are people that can have treatment-resistant psychosis and part of that can mean it's going on longer. Are there any usual time frames in terms of how long psychosis can be expected to go on? I mean, it's, it's obviously very variable. I think on general adult wards, you're average length of admission would be a few weeks so you'd have somebody that that came in if they have a relapsing and remitting disorder then they've probably already been treated with different medications in the past so it's relatively quick for the psychiatrist to know which medications work well if it's a first presentation then it might take a bit longer but i'd say that's the time frame i'd say weeks to maybe a couple of months maybe three months in forensic units where i work it's very different because the patients generally speaking tend to have much more severe illnesses number one and number two they they are by definition quite high risk to be detained under a criminal section of the mental health act within one of these secure units so for that reason alone they have to be observed for a much longer period of time so for those patients typically we're talking i'd say anything from 18 months to a few years Mm -hmm. and within that what level of kind of variance is there in their symptoms so is i'm assuming within 18 months there'd be a lot of kind of ups and downs in terms of how severe things are yeah, absolutely. And it also depends on the individual and whether they're cooperating. So it's not that unusual for our patients to refuse to take medications or secrete medications, in which case they might need a, a depot injection. It's not unheard of that drugs get smuggled onto our wards, which usually destabilizes many patients, especially if they have quite fragile mental states in the first place. Agitation, even you know, there are beefs on some of the wards. Because remember, that a lot of my patients come from prison, so there's, a, there's an element of prison culture there, I think it's fair to say. So patients getting into, into fights or beefs might cause agitation, which might make them worse. So there's lots of potential factors that might make somebody's psychosis worsen temporarily. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in terms of your work then, is the diagnosis something that's therefore kind of ongoing in terms of like is this person currently experiencing psychosis and what other conditions yeah absolutely so i think a good psychiatrist always keeps their mind open to to look at symptoms and see how uh, they're evolving as well so it's quite possible for diagnoses to change yeah Mm -hmm. and are you going into prisons as well or are you 
only working in like mental health primary facilities? So it, there's different aspects to my job. The Right now, most of my work is as an expert witness. So mm-hmm. right now, what I do is I will do one-off or two-off assessments in prisons or within these units, depending on where an individual has been remanded when they've been accused of, of a serious offence. So that's what I do. I do one-off assessment within either of those environments. But in a previous life, I worked within one of those secure units. So f- for the very small proportion of defendants who it can be proven that they do have a severe mental illness and they have no criminal or reduced criminal culpability, those people go to secure units. So I've worked in those as well in mm-hmm. the past. And I know that a concern that can come up, which can be, you know, part of the the misunderstanding and part of, in ways, the stigma, is this idea of, like, people faking mental illness as a way to kind of get out of prison time or, or get lesser sentences. And having interviewed enough professionals like yourself, I have faith in the study that you do in order to, you know, see real symptoms versus people putting them on who know far less about the conditions than you do. Could you talk a little bit about to what extent that does go on, people trying to fake diagnoses? Sure. So I'd say that it's relatively common in my line of work. I'd say probably every two or three months, I assess a defendant who I'm fairly confident is either exaggerating or faking symptoms of mental illness. But I have to say, Bobby, it's actually very easy to tell, and I'll Mm -hmm. explain why. So firstly, because I don't just take the patient at face value that I'm assessing in front of me I look at all of the evidence so if say hypothetically speaking there was a a man who let's say a man who stabbed another person in a in a fight in a pub so if they're telling me they're hearing voices that's not enough I need to look at all of the evidence I'll be looking at all of their psychiatric notes their GP notes I might even speak to their previous doctors I would look at things like witness statements from other people that were in the pub from the victim I'd look at the police transcript uh, interviews which usually happen shortly after somebody's been arrested so I'm looking at all of these bits of evidence to see if there's consistency as I'm sure you'll know psychosis generally speaking doesn't suddenly come out of the of the blue quickly it can yeah. it's very rare usually it, it deteriorates over weeks and months so and that's also connected with the lack of functioning as well so i look through all of these notes to try and find consistency and to find that gradual deterioration if none of those things exist and this person's claiming to hear voices then i'm just I'm very suspicious i'm on high alert for for somebody that i think might be faking it and the other thing that i'd say finally is that Generally speaking, when people are psychotic or paranoid or hearing voices, they're usually quite evasive and guarded. So it's actually quite hard to really elicit their symptoms. They don't they don't open up to me because they don't know me. You know, it's the first time they've ever met me when I do these one-off assessments. Whereas somebody who's trying to fake it generally has an agenda. So they'll tell me within minutes of meeting me that they're paranoid. You know, if you're truly paranoid, you don't tell you don't tell somebody that you've just met that, or they'll react to voices in a way that I think's a bit kind of caricature and, and just a bit OTT. So it's actually very easy to tell. Yeah, that must be it. Must be so odd to observe, but I can imagine the sort of performances people make, and probably in a way, a lot of them cross over with the same kind of things you see on TV, where you're like, "That's clearly not real," because that's probably what they're they're trying to emulate. Yeah. But I think that's a particularly good point there where you said about background, because not only is the proportion of people that are violent in a way related to mental illness so small, but then also that level of mental illness that might contribute to that behaviour is going to be so severe that there will always be a paper trail. You know, there, there's going to be times when other instances have happened or they've had other kind of medical treatment, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I wouldn't say all, but a, a strong majority of the people that we're talking about, so who are so unwell that they can't control their behavior, the majority of them have been in and out of psychiatric hospitals. It's actually very unusual for, for them to have not at least had a community psychiatrist or been on medication. So these are all the things that I look at, and these are the things that make it easy to tell if somebody's faking or not, because if they're faking it, they won't have that history. Mm-hmm. And then as part of that assessment, I would imagine you're also looking at the history of like, potential causes what's contributed to this state of mind so can you run us through some of the the common factors you would see leading up to psychosis yeah absolutely so there is a strong link with family history so often the patients that i see who have psychosis have you know schizophrenia bipolar within the family either first degree relatives or even you know, wider families so that'd be one thing and drug use is a huge huge relevant factor so some substances are more associated with psychosis than others. So to be specific, amphetamines, cocaine, crack, compared to, for example, alcohol or heroin. So basically stimulants can predispose to psychosis, either drug-induced psychosis, which is temporary, or long-term psychosis. So any kind of major trauma, I'd say. So people who have a propensity towards experiencing psychosis, it usually is triggered by some kind of trauma whether that's being a victim of crime or you know being assaulted so those are all the those are all the factors that lead to psychosis and then in terms of issues that lead to criminality i would say that there's things like coming from a a deprived background witnessing domestic violence sometimes the perpetrators of crimes were victims themselves so they might have been physically or sexually abused drug drug abuse again as well as being a predisposition to mental illness is also a, pre, a massive predisposition to criminality so those are some of the factors that would be relevant yeah and i want to particularly highlight that because i think that's something that can be missed and is actually quite a kind of clear contributing factor which is to what extent criminality can be normalised for somebody. So if you've experienced like child abuse or sexual exploitation, if you've been around domestic violence, if you've experienced poverty that perhaps at times necessitated, you know, let's say stealing in order to get by, then, you know, that context is is your, your worldview. That's part of your frame of reference. And therefore, crime can be rationalized in a different way and so this isn't necessarily linking to mental illness but I think that's a part that that people can often miss and I think it's it's a relevant one not only when trying to understand criminality but also understand the ways in which behaviors can be normalized for all of us you know if you're in an abusive relationship you're statistically more likely to get into another one and part of that is the normalization or if you saw one growing up or if you if you go to a much bigger level, if you see criminality in world leaders, that can be more normalised and therefore make it more possible that you would vote for somebody that has done certain horrific things in their life because you're like, oh, well, unconsciously that fits within a different context. Yeah, completely agree with that. I suppose just to, just to add to that, I, I think that certain individuals, young young men especially, can be quite desensitised to high levels of violence mm-hmm. through what we've already mentioned, so domestic violence. But even like, I think, growing up in, in very rough environments, you know, certain council estates, ghettos in the, in the USA, 
when you're just constantly around violence, it becomes part of your norm, as you say. And sometimes criminality is almost inherited. So you, I've certainly seen a number of patients who grew up in criminogenic households. You know, their fathers or their mothers would be anything from drug dealers to gangsters. Or the opposite, sometimes they have very little guidance from their family or from their parents, but they live in these in these very rough kind of environments where there's a lot of gang culture and they feel that they have to join a gang, especially when they're quite young and vulnerable, because if they don't, then they can be targeted. They can be victims. So I suppose I think what we're both saying is that sometimes it's like a natural progression of your lifestyle and your environment as opposed to a conscious decision to, to go into violence and crime. It can become more of an option depending on your circumstances in a way that if you've not had a certain background can be difficult to relate to. But I definitely see that. I mean, here in Ireland, Dublin specifically, a lot of the gang culture is very family centric. There are huge criminal families. And so as far away as it might feel to the rest of us, there are people that are born into families where you would be kind of radical for not following the family line of business. And to circle back on where, where we started with your own family and the kind of expectations of what field you would go into, what's the reaction been like to where you landed? <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting question. So I, I think my parents, like, even yesterday I was speaking to them about this, they do not understand what I do or why I do it. <laughs> they really don't understand the concept. I, I think they struggle to understand the concept of severe mental illness. I think that's something that within the Indian culture is... I think there's a huge stigma and it's kind of ignored and buried. So that's one thing. And then I don't think they understand why I would want to help somebody that's committed a crime. So again, they maybe it's a bit simplistic saying this, but I think it's very black and white for them. So there's goodies and baddies, you know, like you were saying before. And the people that I try to help are clearly baddies. I don't think they've ever understood why I do that. And also they they are, I think they're slightly they're slightly and have been for quite for quite a few years worried about my safety. So even though I've been into prison hundreds of times, they still believe that it's really a dangerous environment, even though there's nothing's ever happened to me. I don't think they'll ever change their minds about that. I think it's just a natural prerogative for, for parents to worry. So yeah, I, I don't think that I don't think they understand why I chose my particular field. But that's fine. You know, I didn't it's more important that I find something that I'm passionate about rather than just please my family. No, of course. And that's the thing, like the logic often can override that stuff. You know, of course, your parents are going to worry. And actually, in some ways, you might be safer in prison environments where there's so many safeguards versus, you know, other kinds of medical environments where, you know, there's always risk out there. There's, you know, there's risk in terms of physical health conditions, things you could catch. You were telling me you've just overcome a cold, you know. So if if a cold that you might have caught off a patient is the worst thing you've got, then that's that's good. <laughs> Actually, I did get punched once in the, in the face once on my very first day on a, on a forensic unit, not in a prison, but it's on a forensic psychiatry. psychiatry Only ward. once? That's <laughs> <laughs> joking, obviously, that's, that's bad. But we were talking off air about previous guest, Carrie Danes, and she has yeah. a long, long list of all the times that, that she's been attacked. But I partly asked that question just because I knew there would be something. I knew parents always worry there was going to be some story there. And when they encouraged you into medicine, this is probably the last thing they saw coming. Yeah. And I suppose they've got a point because medicine really is, 
you know, about helping individuals. And what I do, I'd say, is at the fringes of medicine. So when I act as an expert witness, I would say most of the time I'm helping the court process because the vast majority of the defendants that I assess, even though I, I, you know, psychoanalyze them, it's only a very small portion that I would, for example, give a defense of not guilty by reason of insanity. In those rare cases, I'm helping the patient. But in all the other cases where I don't find a psychiatric defense, I'm actually really greasing the wheels of justice, I think. So it is... It's a very. I completely accept that it's a very unusual, unusual perspective for medicine. Yeah. No. I. I think that's a very interesting way of phrasing it. Being on the fringes of medicine, because yeah, in many ways, you're as much looking for somebody to not have a diagnosis. Yeah. Hmm. All right. And on that point, we will wrap up there. Thank you so much. So, if people want to find out more about your work, you've got a brilliant YouTube channel. Yeah, I do. It's called a psych for sore minds. So I usually dissect high profile cases where there's offending and there's some sprinkling of mental illness or personality traits. So you know, everyone from, say, R. Kelly to Jimmy Savile, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I would really encourage checking it out. There will be something that catches your eye. Like you say, so many of these like recognisable names, a lot of celebrities, you kind of delve into some of their behaviours, which I found interesting, and kind of debunking a lot of the, the myths and stigmas that can exist around mental illness. So yeah, very much crossing over with what we do. So we'll wrap up there. And in the bit behind the paywall, I'm going to ask you a little bit about how this work has changed your perception of of people's behaviour, of feelings of safety and things like this in a minute. But for now, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on, Bobby. It's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers. Thank you for listening. For a list of our recommended resources, visit mentalpodcast.co.uk. And remember, we are in no way a substitute for qualified counselling or other mental health support. Our show is edited and produced by the brilliant Pete Murta with licensed music by NetSky. Links in the description. Speak to you next Thursday. And remember, you are enough.